Hello, and welcome to episode number 24 of the Point of Convergence podcast. As always, I am your host, Exoacadamian. Since early in the 20th century, people's imaginations have been captured by the notion of visitors from the great beyond, visiting our blue pearl of a planet. And of course, for the vast majority of people, and for decades and decades, this great beyond was assumed to be outer space the vast array of galaxies, star systems, and planets populating the immense expanse of the cosmos. When sightings of soon-to-be-branded flying saucers were first reported in the 1940s, it was taken as a given that these fast-moving flying vehicles, which were apparently unlikely to be the technology of terrestrial civilization, were examples of these visitors from outer space finally arrived to make our acquaintance. Immediately, the media was saturated with images of little green men from nearby planets like Mars, as our imaginations filled in the gaps as to who was piloting these advanced craft. This view, which suggested that these visitors were from outer space, held sway for decades more, even though the potential originating planet for these extraterrestrials was pushed farther and farther away as we began to understand more and more about the apparent lifelessness of the neighboring planets within our own solar system. However, by the time the 1960s rolled around, and gaining steam ever since then, competing hypotheses emerged to explain the source of these apparent others. And some of these hypotheses even began to question the assumption that these others were actually really visitors at all. Researchers like Jacques Vallée and John Keel, who had examined thousands of cases each and who tended to be much more familiar with the totality of the data as compared with armchair enthusiasts, began to take note of data points that suggested perhaps these aliens weren't visiting from far-flung star systems after all. The way these others seemed to blink in and out of existence, for instance, led some of these more nuanced researchers to wonder if perhaps these others were popping in and out of different dimensions almost instantaneously. And if that were true, then they weren't necessarily really coming from far away at all. In fact, they may be dropping in from a mirror universe, perhaps even from an alternate Earth, thus giving birth to what's often referred to as the interdimensional hypothesis. When researchers like the aforementioned Valet and Keel considered the long history of the so-called UFO phenomenon, they wondered if perhaps stories buried in the lore of distant history, here we speak of elves, goblins, the fae, etc., may actually be instances of contact with the same beings who are piloting the craft we see buzzing around our skies today and who are interacting with modern human beings in consistently and similarly confoundingly mysterious ways. There are various forms that new hypotheses take to account for all of the data we've described above, but a common term that's arisen to describe these not necessarily extraterrestrial others is ultraterrestrial. This term is seen to capture the sense that perhaps these others are native to the Earth after all, and may indeed have been here longer than we have. But it also allows for the sense that they either don't seem to be necessarily tied only to the Earth, in our experience of it anyway, 
and or that they exist in a bandwidth of reality that only sometimes brings them into direct contact with us, or at least into a kind of direct contact that we can actually perceive. Perhaps they can see us all the time, but we only seem to be able to see them when certain, as of now unknown, conditions are met. The notion of these ultra-terrestrial others is the topic of this, the 24th episode of the Point of Convergence podcast. This idea that there may be one or more sister humanoid species right here, in our midst, as it were, on planet Earth, is as compelling based on the way it neatly fits with so much of the data observed within the UFO phenomenon as it is fascinating, if discombobulating, to our collective imagination. As I mentioned in the introduction, this notion of interdimensionality, which is often a part of the ultra-terrestrial hypothesis, as most people consider it anyway, began around the 1970s and has gained traction ever since. It's partly gained traction because it fits so well with the data. It makes sense of so much of the data. But it's also gained credibility because our notions of reality have grown since then. And the notion of different dimensions and whatnot, and a multiverse, etc., fit well with this notion that these beings could be here, but from a different here, or here sometimes and elsewhere sometimes. And interestingly, as many of you probably know, the Department of Defense is due to deliver a report to Congress on what it knows about UAP, that is Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, slash UFOs. UAP is just the more common normal term they use now, but really it's about UFOs. Now, interestingly, this is what Brian Bender, who is a national security reporter for Politico, had to say in regards to ways even the Pentagon has looked into this notion of interdimensionality and ultraterrestrials. And I quote, the Pentagon did a study that looked at the possibility that these things could be from here, but a different here. They called it multidimensional travel. Are these things from somewhere else, but not that far away, but we can't see them? They are in a different reality, unquote. The reason why I bring this to your attention is just to point out that this is not a fringe idea. Of course, the general public is still not very familiar with notions such as ultra-terrestrials, or interdimensionality. But within the circles of ufology, even within the ranks of government that are looking into this topic, this idea is taken very seriously. And while there are still many who look to the extraterrestrial hypothesis to explain the origin of these others, many who have a nuanced view of the data and of our cutting-edge understanding of reality look to these notions, ultra-terrestriality, and interdimensionality. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there are different ways that people conceive of this notion of ultra-terrestrials. Not everyone sees it the same way. But here's a definition I came across that gets across the general idea. An ultra-terrestrial is, quote, a superior non-human entity of natural or supernatural origin that is indigenous to the planet Earth. UFOs, fairies, and elves are believed by some paranormal researchers to be ultra-terrestrials, unquote. It's probably also helpful at this point to discuss the term alien. You'll find me using this term quite often. 
And to be clear, when I use that term, I don't just mean extraterrestrial, a being from outer space. Really, this term depends on the context in which you're using it, but generally it means other. So it can mean extraterrestrial because, of course, that's other to us who are native to the earth, but it can mean more than that. For instance, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew version of the term alien can refer to a member of a tribe, a neighboring tribe over the hill. So it just means other in a general sense, and it works well whether we're referring to extraterrestrials, interdimensionals, ultraterrestrials, what have you. This term just means other, in the words, different than conventional human being. At this point, I also think it would be helpful to define this term hypothesis. We've talked about the extraterrestrial hypothesis on this podcast, as well as the interdimensional hypothesis and the cryptoterrestrial hypothesis, which, by the way, has some crossover with today's discussion of ultraterrestrials, but we'll get there. But first, let's define this term. A hypothesis is a supposition or proposed explanation made on the basis of limited evidence as a starting point for further investigation. And this is key. It's not a complete theory wrapped up with a bow on it. It's an idea put forward to make sense of the data, and it helps define a direction, a trajectory we might follow to see if indeed that is the case. So it's a starting point. Let's just keep that in mind as we talk about ultraterrestrials here on today's podcast. As I mentioned in the introduction, it was initially researchers like Jacques Vallée and John Keel who proposed this notion of ultraterrestrials. And there were a variety of reasons why this was the case. Different data points that they noticed suggested to them that this was about more than just extraterrestrials, that in fact, perhaps the extraterrestrial hypothesis wasn't the best explanation based on the observed data. And as I've mentioned before, remember Jacques Vallée began in the late 1960s as a proponent, a champion of the extraterrestrial hypothesis. But as he studied this phenomenon more and more, interviewed witnesses more and more, etc., he came to realize that the extraterrestrial hypothesis was incomplete and perhaps even in some ways quite wrong. There were a variety of reasons for this, as I said. Part of it comes down to sightings that were consistent and that happened over a long period of time. In other words, every year for decades, centuries, going back well into the past, there have been sightings of strange vehicles in the sky. Of course, how people describe them has changed over time. People tend to use the metaphors that they're familiar with, whether it's airship or black triangle. But nevertheless, these vehicles have been seen in the sky and various strange beings have been interacted with for a very long time. And of course, Jacques Vallée covered much of this in his breakout book, Passport to Magonia, which sent shockwaves through ufology when it was published. Now again, whether we're talking about fairies or elves or goblins or any of the little people that people reported over vast periods of our history, the suggestion is these may all be ultra-terrestrials, beings that are in some way native to the earth, but perhaps more than just native in the way we think of it or in the way that we tend to exist as beings native to a planet. And again, this also has to do with the fact that they seem to pop in and out of our perception. 
This is true both of the craft and of the entities that are observed and interacted with. And just one final point to make that crystal clear. The idea that Valet put forward is that if these were extraterrestrials that were traveling in spacecraft over vast distances from far-flung star systems, you'd think there would be gaps in their appearance, that it would take a long time, even if they were approaching the speed of light with travel, even if they had achieved faster than speed of light travel, it would take them a while to get here. And you'd expect there would be gaps in between the sightings. But that hasn't been the case. It seems like these others have consistently been in our midst uh, since the beginning of time even. And this lends itself to the idea that they're somehow native to here, or at least here whenever they want to be, rather than having to travel vast distances to get here. Again, this is a big part of the notion of ultra-terrestrials. Now, as I mentioned, there are different ways that people conceive of these ultra-terrestrials, and perhaps there's even more than one kind of ultra-terrestrial. But let's talk about the possible origins that are put forward to explain how they became ultra-terrestrials. Where did they come from initially? What are they? One possibility is that they're some kind of ancient occult group, perhaps one that by accident came across free energy and anti-gravity, perhaps well into the past, and this allowed them to leapfrog our current society. That's one possibility. Another possibility is an isolated pre-diluvial high-tech society. Another option is stranded extraterrestrials or even gods, angelic-like beings, that perhaps came here perhaps even before the onset of our civilization, but for some reason we're stranded here, perhaps couldn't leave, who knows why. But in that sense, they're both extraterrestrial in terms of origin, but they are still denizens of the earth because they've been here even longer than we have, perhaps. Now, I mentioned the possibility of an ancient occult group that perhaps stumbled across groundbreaking technology. Another possibility related to that is Richard Dolan's breakaway civilization hypothesis. This is a notion that after World War II, perhaps the military industrial complex or aspects of it broke away, that perhaps there was a breakthrough in something like anti-gravity or free energy, which allowed a group of people, a group of elites to establish a completely new way of living, a civilization based on a technology that far leapfrogged our own. The idea is that they broke away, became a breakaway civilization hiding away somewhere, perhaps in the caverns of the earth or somewhere else, and that this would be a kind of ultra-terrestrial civilization. I also mentioned the possibility of stranded extraterrestrials or godlike beings. And I mean godlike in the sense that they were entities that had capacities far beyond our own because they were much further evolved than us. So to us, they would appear godlike, especially to earlier versions of us. Now, of course, we think here of something like the Atlantis civilization, the Atlantis myth, which has been kicking around in our subconscious for a very, very long time. This is a notion that there was a sophisticated human civilization or humanoid anyway, that existed far before our current modern sophisticated civilizations. There is evidence even archeologically suggesting that 
there were sophisticated technological civilizations on the earth far before the current model can account for. And this notion of a Atlantis civilization has been covered in books, for instance, like Nick Redfern's The NASA Conspiracies, where it's there discussed even the fact that perhaps there were discussions about these beings, these ultra terrestrials who were actually leftover remnants of a civilization such as Atlantis. Okay, so that gives you a sense of the highlights in terms of what's put forward in terms of the origin, the source of these supposed ultra terrestrials. And again, perhaps there's more than one kind. Now, a question that arises, of course, is how do they remain hidden if they are here on the earth, at least some of the time? And that's consistently been the case going far back into our history. How do they remain so stealthy? Now, there is evidence they can manipulate human perception. Perhaps they can control uh, their, our ability to see them. Perhaps they are standing right in front of us, and only if they choose can we see them. This is possible. And there's definitely literature within the UFO phenomenon that talks about this kind of thing. And it also seems to be the case even that sometimes people can perceive things out of their peripheral vision, out of the corners of their eyes, that if they turn and look directly, they cannot see. In fact, I've even experienced some of that myself, and it's quite common for experiencers in general. This might be an example of this kind of thing, where there is a being, an entity of some sort that can control our perception. That's one possibility. Another possibility that would explain why we can only see them sometimes is perhaps they pass in and out of certain bandwidths and only when they're within a certain range of the spectrum can we perceive them. And again, we don't know what criteria determine when they're in that range and when they're not, but perhaps this explains why we can see them sometimes, but not always. Now, earlier on, we talked about different reasons why the data seems to support this idea of ultra-terrestrials, of beings somehow native to the earth. Another key aspect of the data that makes sense when seen from this perspective is DNA extraction and the biological aspect that is a big part of the UFO phenomenon. Here we're talking about abductions, DNA extraction, even hybridization programs. Now, in episode number 13 of the Point of Convergence podcast, we talked about the crypto-terrestrial hypothesis. And that hypothesis has a lot of crossover with this ultra-terrestrial idea. Uh, in fact, in some ways, it's the same hypothesis, or this is crypto-terrestrial plus, you could say. And in both cases, it makes more sense why they would be interested in our DNA if they are native to the Earth. Now, perhaps they are an isolated, stranded group. Uh, like we talked about before. And perhaps they inbred over generations, and perhaps this has weakened their genetic stock. This was even suggested in Mac Tony's book about the crypto-terrestrials. Now, if that's the case, then the argument is they have used us, they have used our DNA, as well as actually produced encounters where human beings have sex with these others in order to improve their genetic stock. And while we think of abductions as random, perhaps they're not. Here I would suggest that possibly they are looking for a certain kind of genetic signature, and maybe that determines who they abduct if that's really going on. And 
that's because they're looking for a specific genetic material to improve their stock, perhaps to address a malady in their own genetic background that was proposed by Mactonis. And of course, as I also mentioned in that episode about the crypto terrestrials, speaking of biology, it's much more likely they would be compatible with us if they are native to the earth. And even more importantly, if at some point we have some crossover in terms of our DNA, perhaps in the distant past, perhaps we came from them at some point and split off. Who knows? But we know that you can't just take any two species and interbreed them, at least according to our current understanding of how that works. So according to our current understanding, this would make more sense, these interbreeding programs, even these hybridization programs, if they had compatible genetic background. Now let's move on to another aspect of the data that seems to support this notion of ultra terrestrials, of beings here on the earth, somehow perhaps even related to us, perhaps in the distant past. Here I speak of the craft that are observed, the UFOs or UAPs as is commonly referred to in government circles today. What we notice is that these craft look suspiciously, not necessarily next gen, but next next gen. And by that, I mean, they look like craft we could perhaps develop within about a hundred years. And even people like Luis Elizondo have suggested that as we've grown in our understanding of physics and notions like anti-gravity, we now propose the idea that perhaps we could learn from these craft, from what we're observing in terms of how they seem to maneuver in the skies, and that we could perhaps produce craft like that within a hundred years based on our current trajectory. Now, this is suspicious in itself because again, I just wanna point out as we've discussed on other podcast episodes, there are likely many different civilizations across the cosmos. And some of them will be much, much, much older than us, so much so that we can't even really fathom it. We're talking billions, if not trillions of years older than us, meaning they would have that much more time to develop technology. And on that kind of rate, we're talking about technology that we would no longer even recognize as technology. Reality would be completely malleable, probably at that point, from our point of view. So that inevitably raises the question, why do these craft just happen to look so much like our next next gen craft? The chances of that being the case, if this is really coming from an extraterrestrial civilization is very, very low. Just wanna make that point. This is again, another aspect of the data that supports the idea of these ultra terrestrials who are somehow native to the earth and perhaps in some way connected to us. Now, we already discussed ways that they might remain invisible to us, at least much of the time. But that still begs the question, if they are native to the Earth, at least part of the time, when they're here, where do they dwell? One of the possibilities put forth is the cavernous depths of the Earth, that perhaps there's these deep caverns in the Earth and perhaps tunnel structures, an entire series of tunnels that connect these different caverns. Now, interestingly, in terms of the historical data, the little people, the goblins, the fae and whatnot, have been observed in our folklore as coming out of caves, even in and around 
Appalachia, where I live. And some people, even modern researchers, have suggested that perhaps this is an example of the ultra-terrestrials emerging from their usual homes. Now, another idea put forward in terms of where these ultra-terrestrials might dwell is within our oceans. And I would just remind you that two-thirds of the planet's surface is covered by water. And others have pointed out that we have more accurate maps of the moon than we do of some of the deepest trenches of our oceans. Much of our oceans remain uncharted in many ways. So that opens the possibility, of course, that there could be civilizations dwelling in our oceans that have underground cities, entire cities that are deep under the ocean. And of course, this also fits with some of the data we've seen recently that discusses USOs, unidentified submersible objects that are coming in and out of water. It has even been noticed, apparently, that objects will drop from space down into our atmosphere and then into our oceans. And these are referred to as transmedium vehicles because they can seamlessly go back and forward between these different mediums, ocean, atmosphere, and space. And as Luis Elizondo and others have pointed out, we don't have craft that can do anything like that. Now, regarding the different origin possibilities we discussed earlier, one of them was the Atlantis myth. And of course, I probably don't need to remind you that a big part of the Atlantis myth involved a civilization that dwelt in vast domed cities along the bottom of the ocean. The idea is that perhaps there was some sort of catastrophe that forced them there, even a catastrophe of their own making, perhaps even a technological catastrophe, and that therefore they lived in these cities deep within the ocean. Of course, this fits well with some of the data we're seeing now. Just wanted to bring that to your attention. And as we've discussed on previous podcasts, it's also possible that this myth has been revised over time, especially if it evolved from oral traditions. So we don't have to take this myth literally in terms of it being a completely accurate description of an ancient civilization, but it might point to something. It's like a signpost pointing to some distant period in Earth's history where a more sophisticated civilization lived here well before Homo sapiens ever came on the scene. And now I'd like to leave you with this concluding thought. Many of us have become fascinated, even enthralled, by the fact that we can now use DNA searches through services like Ancestry.com to find out about our deep genetic history. We can learn about different geographic regions our ancestors came from and different ethnicities that make up who we are biologically and in terms of our overall identity. Now, what I would like to put forward for your consideration is what if, in addition to those various elements that make up our sense of who we are, of our very identity, what if one day we find out that there's actually a sister species on this earth, at least part of the time, these very ultra-terrestrials we're discussing today, and that we also have a shared background with them? How might that change disclosure? How might that change our understanding of who they are and who we are? And on that note, we've come to the close of another edition of the Point of Convergence podcast. As I like to say, let's keep this conversation going and growing week to week, month to month. 
Please continue to let others know about this podcast so we can continue to expand this conversation. But until next time, friends, from deep within the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina, this is Exo Academian signing out.